a big guy named Joe DiMaggio, top-ranking American League baseball player, heads for Uncle Sam's army. Joe, age 28, waives his 3A draft status and asks for immediate action. The slugging outfielder of the New York Yankees is pronounced in perfect condition. So the $50,000 a year Joe DiMaggio becomes a $50 a month guy named Joe. On February 17, 1943, Jolton Joe DiMaggio enlisted in the United States Army. At the time, baseball knew few greater stars than DiMaggio. He was the face of the New York Yankees, a two-time American League MVP, and a five-time World Series champion. But in 1943, those accomplishments paled in comparison to the one yet to be obtained overseas in Europe and the Pacific. DiMaggio wouldn't come near a battlefield, instead assigned to serve in more of a morale-boosting capacity, playing baseball on military teams stationed in California and Hawaii, keeping America's pastime alive amidst the mayhem consuming the world. Professional baseball's contribution of athletes to the Army provided our servicemen opportunities to watch service games that included some familiar faces. Joe DiMaggio, Jerry Pretty, and Mike McCormick were among those in the lineup of this 1944 contest between teams from Fort Shafter and the 7th Army Air Force. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, gang, how's it going? My name's Tim Hanlon, and it's uh, Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, the curious little podcast. That is, of course, devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Uh, we are back once again uh, for another fun-filled episode. Thank you for finding us. And uh, if you're new to the proceedings, thanks for uh, for for finding us in, in the wilds of podcast land and, and giving us a try. We appreciate it. And if you're a return listener, well, I, you know, hopefully you're uh, you're back for more fun uh, because you enjoyed something that uh, we did previously. We uh, certainly hope that is the case. And uh, we are uh, absolutely intrigued this week by uh, a, a, an offshoot of uh, some things that we've kind of nibbled at before uh, as we go back to uh, baseball, the nation's pastime. Uh, and we get into an interesting uh, period of time around baseball's history that during that of uh, World War II. And I think a lot of people sort of um, look at history and baseball and the war uh, in the 1940s kind of as the, hey, how did Major League Baseball survive? What was going on in uh, the American League and the National League during that time? What was the uh, what were the standings? What was the play going on and that kind of stuff with, frankly, a uh, some ignorance and uh, just frank, plain old forgetting that a lot of players uh, during World War II, especially when the United States uh, was forever uh, dragged into it at the uh, tail end of 1941, Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941 to be exact, a lot of people fail to uh, remember that a lot of baseball players, football too for that matter, and a lot of professionals uh, in other, uh, not only sports, but other professions, uh, were uh, drafted into or enlisted in on their own, of their own volition into the war effort. Uh, and baseball was uh, no exception to that rule. Uh, and as you heard that sort of clip there from uh, the Decades Television Network, uh, a, what they call a multicast network, 
uh, and that the dulcet tones of one Bill Curtis, legendary Chicago newsman, and now uh, one of the main voices of the decade's television channel. Uh, and at the end there, a little Chris Schenkel for you, prior to, or maybe even during, well, it's probably prior to his uh, ABC television days, uh, narrating sort of the end of that clip there. That's Joe DiMaggio uh, being uh, uh, remembered, if you will, or or. Uh, discussed as being a uh, an enlist an enlistee an enlistee he says yes uh, to uh, the war effort uh, he was not drafted but plenty of players were and baseball uh, was absolutely uh, a thing that was uh, uh, protected uh, and uh, all the way to the highest uh, offices of the land uh, FDR at the time. Uh, with his famous green light letter, uh, was absolutely uh, in favor of keeping the national pastime of baseball in major league form going uh, and also continuing baseball's presence when players went to the armed services, the armed forces, uh, they were uh, encouraged to continue to play. Uh, in Navy teams, in Army teams, in various uh, uh, ports of call, whether it be uh, in various bases uh, in Europe, uh, and certainly on the in the Pacific Theater as well. And our guest this week, Gary Bedingfield, uh, has a great new book out about how baseball in the arms armed forces was played in Hawaii during the Second World War, uh, arguably the uh, uh the major center of armed forces baseball hawaii was uh, the book is called baseball in hawaii during world war ii uh and it's a fascinating tale of uh a whole bunch of players uh, a lot of the minor leaguers uh, a whole bunch of major leaguers either draftees or enlistees uh playing uh baseball for the pleasure of the armed forces uh on various bases around the world um, some who were, uh, you know, by day, uh, uh, you know, involved, uh, on the, uh, on the battlefield, uh, others who are involved in, uh, desk jobs or, or other parts of the war effort, uh, but all of them, uh, enjoying, frankly, the opportunity to play, uh, for the, uh, betterment of morale, uh, for the, uh, entertainment, at least in Hawaii, uh, but I think also in some of these other bases too, uh, for the, uh, uh, the local uh, fans uh, there, uh, the sort of uh, uh, plain clothes, if you will, non-military personnel uh, to the extent they could, but certainly for those who were a part of the war effort that uh, could use a little uh, R&R. Uh, and by the way, getting to see some of the world's best baseball players, uh, including, for example, Joe DiMaggio uh, or Ralph Kiner or Bob Lemon uh, or Johnny Mize or Stan Musial or Pee Wee Reese. How about Phil Rizzuto, uh, Enos Slaughter, uh, Red Ruffing? I mean, these are like Ted Williams. We're talking about uh, future Hall of Famers, all of them. Uh, Joe, of course, Joe Gordon, uh, Joe DiMaggio's uh, brother, Dom. Um, most of these players, uh, you know, uh, that we just mentioned, uh, uh, future Hall of Famers, but just literally dozens and dozens and dozens uh, of great players who were uh, either drafted into or volunteered their way into service uh, for their country during World War II and getting the chance to thematically continue baseball, which 
you know, very much was part of the fabric of culture in the United States. And it was important, certainly at Roosevelt's level and others high up in government and military uh, service who felt that uh, the uh, the continuation of play, both in the major league uh, realm as well as in the actual armed forces, was important uh, to keep hopes going and alive. Uh, no question, servicemen were following what was going on in Major League Baseball at the time. If they weren't playing themselves, uh, they were watching it or sort of following it. And what a rare and unique opportunity to see some of the best players in the game at the time, uh, literally in military uniform, playing uh, for their respective uh, services. And um, it's just a fascinating tale. Uh, Gary's uh, uh, not only book, but uh, has a, a fantastic uh, website that uh, sort of chronicles uh, uh, in uh, what's what was going on at this time. It's called baseballinwartime.com. He's also got a, a sister site uh, called baseballsgreatestsacrifice.com. It's uh, uh, an unbelievable database of uh, baseball players, uh, minor league, uh, major league, and, and others in the professional game uh, who uh, who paid the ultimate sacrifice, lost their lives uh, in various uh, war efforts. Um, and we're talking uh, pre-World War I, all the way through uh, post-Vietnam and non-war time and all that kind of stuff. It is a uh, uh, probably the most comprehensive database of baseball players uh, who lost their lives uh, while serving this country. But uh, the bulk of our conversation uh, this week uh, is around this unique time, around baseball in uh, the World War II era, and in particular, uh, the play of the game, uh, the America's pastime, uh, on uh, these various bases during the actual war effort, as most of these uh, great players uh, made their way uh, overseas to serve their country. Uh, that's the topic uh, this week with uh, with our guest, Gary Bettingfield, as we talk about baseball uh, in Hawaii, but other places too, uh, during World War II, the uh, fascinating time. Uh, some of the best players ever collected uh, playing games uh, on bases all around the world while the war was raging. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, I wouldn't call it a footnote, but uh, foundational part of the baseball uh, history thread uh, and uh, its uh, uh, contributions to to life in this country. Uh, with Gary, coming up in a moment's time. Stay tuned. It's really interesting stuff. Uh, before we get there, of course, we want to uh, highlight a sponsor uh, of ours this week. And, you know, we try to keep them thematic, but you know what? At some point, uh, we can't always match them up, but uh, it doesn't uh, prevent uh, their greatness from uh, from reaching you. And uh, here's a great example. Uh, this week, it's 417 Helmets. 417helmets.com. That's the website. It's collectible helmets and more. It's our pal Judd Lesher uh, in, uh, I think, Metropolitan St. Louis, if I'm not mistaken. Judd, I'm sorry you're yelling at your device right now. Of course, it probably is. But if I've mistaken you or you've moved since we first got connected, I apologize. Uh, but yes, of course, as the, uh, the site uh, uh, sort of hints, it's about football helmets, mini football helmets, and they're well done. They're fantastically crafted, handcrafted. Just about every team uh, from any league, both present or past, whether it be collegiate or professional, whatever you want, high school even, uh, they're all there for you. But the WFL uh, is represented. Uh, the NAIA, if you're into small Division three and uh, uh, college, uh, whatever, 
Uh, they're all there. And look, if you want something custom made, you can get that too. Uh, as uh, 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 attentive listeners of this show may remember, uh, Judd and I, once we uh, got connected and uh, formalized our relationship, uh, he was kind enough to create on the fly a New York Cosmos NASL football helmet. Of course, it's a soccer one, right? But, the, the, but it's great. It's really cool. What a great way to commemorate your favorite team, regardless of sport. Uh, if you'd like to uh, have it in a mini helmet fashion, uh, if you want your company name or your uh, organization or uh, just, you know, for a birthday gift, a, a friend, whatever, Judd is uh, is there for you. you. can make a custom mini helmet of the highest quality beyond uh, some of the great football teams of present and or the past. It's 417helmets.com. Again, collectible helmets and more. Uh, and Judd is uh, ready to serve you. Uh, whether it's from his uh, exhaustive collection uh, of previously uh, made items uh, and teams and leagues, or one that you might like to have crafted for yourself or for a loved one or your organization. And of course, we've got a promo code for you. It's good seats, good seats. That's the promo code at 417helmets.com. That gives you 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thank you to Judd. Thank you, uh, listeners, for trying them out. You will uh, enjoy, and uh, I, 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 we have seen many, many, many repeat visitors. That's how well uh, uh, regarded uh, Judd's uh, wares are, and uh, you will do um, us uh, a solid uh, by checking them out and uh, hopefully finding something you love at 417 helmets.com promo code good seats thank you judd and thank you listeners and of course thank you all for continuing to listen as we get into this week's topic we're going to talk wartime baseball no not in the united states but all these great players going to serve their country we're going to talk about what they did how they played and the excitement that was baseball in hawaii and other places around the world during world war ii here's our chat with gary bedingfield please sit back and enjoy I think there's a uh, an assumption that when the war came in the United States, you know, uh, f- fully in, in 41 with the, with Pearl Harbor and, and all that. Yeah. Um, that. OK, well, baseball, football, all these professional sports, you know, these are players who are going to kind of sign up and leave and 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 the game is going to be impacted. Um, but I guess most people don't sort of realize that there was an effort to kind of allow them to have at least some uh, way to keep their skills up while they were serving their country. So to me, this is all fascinating. Before we start, what's your entree to this subject altogether? I, you're in Scotland. Uh, uh, I, 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 I'm just curious as to how this particular uh, part of baseball history in the United States came across your radar. Um, well, first of all, baseball is a real minority sport over here in uh, in the UK. It's uh, It's never been a big profile sport at all it's always kind of kind of been underground bit of a minority kind of thing it's 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 all over the country but there's just it's in small pockets everywhere um so first of all it, it's an unusual sport for me to pick um but as far as i guess the military side of things is concerned uh, i've always been fascinated with 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 the history of world war ii i think ever since i was a kid that's always intrigued me and then I guess in just kind of later years, I just combined the two. I really thought, well, I'm interested in, in World War II history. I'm interested in baseball. Let's look and see where the two link. 
And, and that really was a starting point because I realized there wasn't a huge amount of research done on, on wartime baseball. And I thought there's a gap here. There's a gap that needs to be filled. And for the last 25 years, that's what I've been trying to do is really just fill that gap. And it's a huge gap. <laughs> and I've got a long, long way to go. But um, I enjoy what I do. I definitely enjoy it. And, and it's, it's good to kind of bring stories to the, to the public that just have really not been told before. And that, that's my, my effort really is to let's look at wartime baseball and let's bring that into, into the public realm so that everybody can get to, to understand what happened during that time. So your, your adjunct is, is more, quote unquote, history and or wartime history. And the, the baseball thing is sort of a, uh, a, a, a itself an adjunct of that. Well, I, I've never really written about wartime history. Um, it, it's, it's pretty much driven by baseball. It really is. It's just that I've always had an interest in World War II. You know, as a kid growing up, um, I, I, I was born 20 years after the war finished, but it was still quite a, quite a big thing as a kid. You know, we, we, you, know you, you kind of you, you read war stories as a kid and you played games as you know war games with kids so there was always kind of a big thing so I grew up with with kind of that military history interest but baseball has been been you know pretty much a, a huge part of my life for many many years so it it really is driven by baseball but the military thing is is kind of I guess what underpins it really that interest and combining those two has just been a, a joy to do really all right. Well, let's let's kind of set the tone. And obviously, we have listeners of all ages. Uh, you know, those who, are, who remember maybe first person kinds of things, and they were there. Mm-hmm. Although, obviously, in this this particular area, is getting it's getting a little <clears throat> lean uh, as the um, uh, as the years roll on. But but you know, people who are just uh, completely uh, ignorant or just uh, curious about sort of baseball history or or what was going on around that time. But maybe you can set the tone a little bit as to sort of, I guess, the prelude, right? I think everybody knows, you know, the date that will, you know, live in infamy, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the cursory look is that that's, that wasn't truly the quote-unquote beginning of the U.S. involvement in the war, but it certainly was a line that was drawn that, that uh, there was no going back at that point, right, after lots of conjecture and debate in this country. But maybe you can kind of set the tone a little bit and, Perhaps uh, there's no denying, though, that that was a, a, a seismic event that um, maybe is important to kind of at least set the tone for how then baseball and uh, and the war sort of commingled, shall we say? Yeah, well, I, I, we actually need to go back um, a little bit before Pearl Harbor to really look at the link between baseball and the military, because what you had was the draft. So you had players that were coming out, certainly out of the minor leagues, and going into the military before Pearl Harbor. I think the draft began in October 1940. So you would look at kind of the the summer of 1941 um, when the U.S. was not really at war. Um, But you still had plenty of baseball players who are now military personnel and were playing on various teams, mainly in the U.S., to some extent in, in Hawaii as well. Um, but you know, baseball was happening on a military kind of level at that time before Pearl Harbor. But once you had Pearl Harbor, that was that was really where it all changed. And that that's where um, I, I mean, by I think it was by January or February of 1942, you had U.S. troops landing in the U.K. 
so that was just a couple of months after Pearl Harbor. There were there were thousands of U.S. troops then stationed in in, in the U.K. As what was decided was that, that they would make the push to, against Germany before they would make the push against Japan. So you had a lot of U.S. troops in the U.K. And that's what interested me, I guess, at the beginning, really, was, um, you know, I, I live in the U.K., so so what kind of base will happen during the war? And that had never been written about. So that was a really interesting kind of look at things there. Um, but but I think somewhere in the region of around 3,000 minor leaguers served in the military during the war and something like about 500 major league players were were serving in the military at some point during the war. So that's th- th- those are pretty big numbers. Um, and then, of course, we can also add to that those that lost their lives. And we're looking at probably about a, around about 160 minor league players who died, two major league players, um, making the ultimate sacrifice as well. Uh, and th- what's interesting is that that minor league figure, the actual figure is not known. We're at 160, but I keep discovering new ones every year. Um, you know, I was a, I wrote a book a few years ago um, called Baseball's Dead of World War II. I wrote that in 2010, and the figure then stood at 127. The figure's now around about 160, and I'm probably going to find another few in the next few months. It kind of disappoints me, really, that baseball has forgotten these people. Uh, you know, they, they played the game professionally and, and, and made the, the ultimate sacrifice for their country, and yet have been forgotten. Talk to me about the draft, because I, I think it's lost on a lot of people that this uh, you're, you're referencing essentially in 1940, the fall, I guess. Right. Where um, President Roosevelt essentially uh, uh, signed into law, uh, in essence, a, um, a, a major drafting of uh, able bodied males. Again, understand mm-hmm. the time. Um but interestingly, I think a lot of people in t- today's sort of uh, modern understanding would look back and go, gee, how how were baseball players and other professionals uh, not able to, quote unquote, get out of that, so to speak? Yeah, I, th- there was no way out. I, I think we're talking right. about very, very different times. Um, you know, this is October 1940 with the first draft. Um, and. and it was, as you said, able-bodied Americans. America needed to defend itself, although it wasn't involved in the war. It knew that something was coming, <laughs> something was going to happen, uh, and and it saw that it needed uh, to, to to build up an army. Really, it had a a, a pretty dismal-looking army. Really, it had a, had a, an excellent navy, but as far as the the army was concerned, it really didn't have hardly anything at all. Um, so there was no way out for anybody. Uh, unless uh, you uh, had a, a medical reason to to not get in, you know, not be drafted, and many players were drafted. Hank Greenberg was probably one of the the most famous players that was drafted in those very early days, um, and there were a lot of kind of other players as well, and maybe not so well known players that were drafted, and there just there wasn't a way out if you were if you were fit, which uh, majority of baseball players were, um, then they were eligible to be drafted. And that was all done. That was all done on lottery numbers. And the lower your lottery number, the more chance you had of being drafted. So it was really kind of a very random sort of thing. You just allocated a number. And if that number happened to be a fairly low number, the chances are that you were going to get picked. So, so no one was no no one was immune and and, and uh, whether you were a baseball player or or any other kind of professional. I mean I you know if you're we're talking um uh 
Oh, I don't know. It's, I think it's ages 21 to 35 or 36, something like that. Um, and there, and the numbers were staggering. It was in the, you know, the uh, two, three million level, I guess, at least to, in, in sort of in the earliest days. It was, it was millions and everybody had to register for the draft. Absolutely. Everybody had to register. Uh, you know, it, medically, you could get out of it. And there were other reasons as well that you could get out of it. But they're really, as far as baseball is concerned, they're, they're, there's not really many stories of people um, getting out of the draft, to be honest. Most of them, most of them ended up um, being drafted at some point other than those that, that had any kind of medical problems. Um, on the website and in your book, you uh, describe uh, two of the um, uh, earliest uh, selectees, shall we say. Uh, you mentioned Hank Greenberg, which we can get to a little bit in a second. Uh, but uh, the first one is an interesting little uh, vignette. Uh, uh, Hugh Mulc- Mulcahy from the, from the Phillies. Yeah, losing pitcher Hugh. <laughs> yeah, that was his uh, nickname. That was his nickname. Yeah, um, because he he just he lost a ton of games, <laughs> just because the Phillies were such a bad team. It certainly wasn't because he was a bad pitcher. But uh, yeah, he was. He's recognized as one of the, the very first. He's the first, I, I guess, high profile player to be drafted. Uh, there were various others that got drafted. Lou Thurman, um, Otis Swigart, I think, and the. Um, Another guy named Muscles Gallagher was another one who were kind of, they were major league players, but they weren't really well known. But, um, but Mokai was one of the first to be drafted. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, but, but Pearl Harbor certainly changed the tone, right. And the tide, I guess. Right. Because uh, people like Greenberg and, and, um, uh, and Mokai getting drafted sort of as the sort of war was raging elsewhere, but not really sort of hitting home, so to speak in the United States until of course, the end of uh, 41, what sort of happens there? Because I, I, I get the sense from what I've read, both from your stuff as just generally, that not only is the, if there was any reluctance about being drafted, uh, it may have been sort of uh, dissipated by sort of a pride of, uh, you know, uh, being part of the effort for the United States. But, but also it seems uh, some of these notable players and not so notable players wanted to enlist Beyond that, there were certainly uh, some that did enlist. Yeah, they wanted to be a part of things. Uh, and I think that some felt it was a good idea to enlist um, to, because I think you had to serve for 12 months. So I think some felt it was a good idea. Let me enlist now. Let me get my 12 months out of the way, and then I can get back to playing baseball. This is before Pearl Harbor. But that was, I think that was the idea for some of them. Was it a good idea to kind of do it beforehand and just get it out of the way? Um, but certainly with Pearl Harbor, once that had happened, there were, there were plenty that enlisted. Uh, I, I think you know, probably Bob Feller is, is the most well-known who enlisted within days of the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, and I've, I've had the, the pleasure of, of meeting Bob a few times and that's one very proud man of of his um, of his military service. You know, extremely proud, uh, and you know he he was one of one of many who who chose to to enlist and serve their country. And uh, it, it's in a way, it's hard to imagine the sports stars of today doing that type of thing. I, I, I sometimes struggle when I look at the superstars we have today. Um, you know, would they take that same approach? I don't know. So let's put this in context, right? Um, uh, where is uh, the sport of baseball uh, and the war effort sort of uh, generally? I can imagine um, both amongst the players and baseball's management, 
there were, I guess, mixed feelings, right? Uh, obviously, uh, the United States in a, you know, in a world war effort, you know, that's all hands on deck kind of thing. And, and you know, the support of one's country comes before anything uh, entertainment oriented or, or, or otherwise, right? But then there's also this business of baseball, which, by the way, had gone through perhaps uniquely because it was really the only major professional sport at the time back in the first world war, right? Where, uh, you know, the, the, the sport had to, you know, improvise and limp along. And, and I would imagine that the, the seniors uh, overseeing the game at that point didn't necessarily want to repeat that either. So maybe you can kind of sort of throw that in. It seems like there's a dichotomy there of opinion as to how baseball quote unquote uh, should handle its, war effort, so to speak. I, 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 baseball struggled through the war. It kept going. It definitely kept going, but I think it struggled. The minor leagues, uh, most of the minor leagues shut down. Um, uh, there were just a handful of, of minor leagues that managed to survive during the war and keep going. But baseball, uh, it, it kept going through the war with the players that weren't drafted. The players are either too young, too old, or unfit for military service. They kept the game alive throughout the war, and, and it was looked upon as being something that was great entertainment for um, the civilians and, and, I guess, people that were working in uh, defense works and, and doing essential work with, still within the U.S. Uh, it, it kept alive. It kept on going along, and, I, and um, there were lots of war bomb drives that were done at games, uh, and, and it's... It was really there. Um, I, I've heard so many things from, from soldiers who served during the war and, and said, you know, baseball was the most important thing to them. It's what they wanted to get home to. It's what they loved. It's what they wanted to get back to be able to sit in maybe Yankee Stadium and watch another game. That was, the, that was their dream to get home and do that. So it, was, it, it really was America's pastime, uh, yeah, the national pastime at that point. Um, and I, I just think that the owners of teams – they just knew they had to keep the game going for, for, for the right reasons, but obviously they still had to make a living as well. Yeah. And obviously there's the famous uh, uh, Roosevelt letter, the, I guess known as the green light letter, green right? Light, yeah. the mm-hmm. essentially sort of the belief that, Hey, you know, for, for morale uh, and actually, and interestingly, right. For, for, for troops deployed uh, throughout the world. Right. I mean, in many respects, right. Baseball, because of its supremacy as a sport in the United States, uh, it was the ultimate beacon of normality, I guess. And if, you know, you're out fighting the good fight for the country, right? Uh, it's nice to know that you can at least try to follow your beloved Yankees or re- whatever it is, right? And uh, and know that that's hopefully waiting for you uh, and part of the, re- when you come back and the reasons why, one of the reasons why an essential uh, American pastime that, uh, you know, it's almost a motivating factor uh, and not looked upon as, geez, I'm over here and everybody else is having a good time over back home. Yeah, I, I think there was a small amount of resentment. I'm pretty sure there was. Um, I've not come across a huge amount of it um, in in all the years of research. As uh, you mentioned earlier, that you know there, there aren't that many people left that, that are still living, that kind of lived through that. But when I started this 25 years ago, I managed to speak to lots of people who, who had served during the war. 
Um, and there wasn't much resentment. Most people love the fact that baseball was kept going. It, it, it gave them something to look forward to. Yeah, baseball and apple pie. I think those are the those are the things that uh, the dreams they held on to. So, all right. So let's let's describe then, and obviously the the major uh, focus of of uh, this extensive book, by the way, and we'll we'll promote the hell out of it uh, during the rest of the episode, but. Um, you focus on a particular realm of the baseball experience uh, in Hawaii. I want to sort of maybe get into, as we lead into that sort of. um, So number one, it's interesting because some of these, uh, obviously a lot of these players are are being uh, brought into the ranks, right? So beyond just uh, being uh, shoulder to shoulder with um, quote unquote, ordinary uh, uh, draftees and enlisted men, um, you have uh, baseball players amongst your ranks, right? Um, so there's also that that the, that connection, right? So it's not just about sort of hearing about last week's games back home and that kind of stuff, because you had some real honest to goodness players that were amongst your uh, amongst your your ranks uh, to sort of uh, keep this sort of uh, that, that spirit alive. But what accommodations were made um, for these players, or maybe there were gradations of accommodations made because. I think people might look back and, and kind of head scratch and go, wow, they were allowed to play and there was actually le- quote unquote league play while they were stationed in their various locales and stuff. That seems interesting, right? Uh, recreational, understandable, but um, maybe it seems a little bit much given that, you know, there's a war to be had here um, versus trying to recreate some kind of league play or recreational league. But I got to think there's some PR benefits to this too some 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 of that in the in the in the background i, I think so um th- i think the reason there was league play is be- because you, you had a lot of troops with a lot of spare time on their hands and i think what they needed was some kind of an entertainment let's let's give them something to watch give them something to enjoy um and in some cases give them something to be a part of as well because there were a lot of good high school players, college players, semi-pro players, um, they got an opportunity to play alongside major league players. Uh, and, and I think it was just, it was a good source of entertainment. And I think that you know, these guys all went through boot camp, so they did their basic training. But from there on, they were normally athletic specialists. That was their job. So that, a lot of times their job was to organize these teams um, to, to make sure the field was was in good shape, to organize all the equipment and that was really their responsibility a lot of times with these. So, so to an extent, maybe maybe they had a um, an easy, if you like, kind of life, um, military life. But I, I think their contribution to the entertainment for certainly military personnel, but also civilian personnel as well. Um, I, th- I think that um, you know, I think I think it's it was a huge contribution. It really did help. I think a great deal to to giving 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 people a little piece of home right there on their doorstep. Um, you know, the, the book that I've written here is about Hawaii, but this was happening everywhere. This was happening in Europe. So this was happening here in in the United Kingdom, and then you know, as the push was made into mainland Europe, it was happening in France, and it was happening in Belgium and Germany and, and Italy and Holland. Um, so wherever there were American troops stationed, there were there were these games happening, and quite often with with well known baseball players. Um, I think it made a big difference for those that were were on the sidelines enjoying that. 
How are these teams demarcated? Were they done by military service or were they uh, intermingled or uh, how, how, uh, regionally? Uh, were there regional competitions? I mean, how is this sort of all structured? Uh, well, certainly there were, there were always um, unit teams. So you would have a team, for example, rep- I'm trying to think of teams we had here in the UK. We had a team represented the 1st Armoured Division, a team represented the 34th Infantry Division. So they were they were usually teams based around a particular unit. And that's the same in, in Hawaii. You had um, the, the 14th Naval District League, which had teams that represented different naval units, you had the Schofield Barracks League, which had teams representing different army units. So generally speaking, they were um, military units, military uh, divisions, uh, regiments, battalions even. Although what you had in Hawaii as well is you had uh, the, the Hawaii League and the Honolulu League. Uh, and these were more civilian teams with military players being a part of those teams. So I'm so, sorry, these are minor leagues that were already in existence that – were able to, if you will, borrow uh, enlisted men as well? Yeah, it's difficult to categorize quite what they were. They weren't recognized minor league teams, but they were, they were sort of on a semi-pro basis and they were, they were pretty decent teams. And certainly during the war, a lot of those teams, in fact, all of those teams borrowed is a good word, I guess, borrowed military players uh, to join their ranks as well. So that these guys will be playing on their, their military service teams and they'd also be playing on some of the civilian teams as well. well that's interesting. So uh, I guess the composition then of these teams is, you know, average quote unquote players and or uh, enlistees or draftees with, um, I don't know. Would you call them ringers? I mean, I, I could, I could see, I could imagine some of the shenanigans that might go into creating or, if you will, drafting for lack of a better term, teams uh, to play in this sort of closed military kind of uh, league structure. Uh, well, certainly within the within the military leagues, they would generally um, pretty well based on the players available within that military unit but the civilian teams yeah that was that was a bit of a free-for-all really you you could you could uh whatever they needed if they needed a pitcher they'd look around and see who they could find and and, and drag somebody in from from any of the units so yeah that they were i guess they were ringers yeah i think it's probably a good way of describing them certainly on the civilian teams that didn't really happen to any great extent on the military teams well, let's talk about Hawaii specifically, because I've said this is a focus of, of your book and, and mm-hmm. this book, Baseball in Hawaii during World War II. Um, I, you know, in the sort of a picture says a thousand words department, um, the cover uh, of your book is probably is a it's a stunning picture. I don't know where you got it from and maybe you could describe it a little bit. But in essence, it's it's this place called Furlong Field. I don't know where that is. You'll tell us, I'm sure. But it has, uh, you know, it's one of those old fashioned uh, by hand, you know, Wrigley Field type uh, scoreboards and has all the uh, all the players playing in that game. And it's just it is stunning to see some of these names. It's the seventh uh, Air Force, seventh division of Air Force versus the Navy. I don't know what the, you'll, you'll explain that in a second. But DiMaggio, Reese, uh, Johnny Mize, Phil Rizzuto. I mean, it goes on and on. Um, it is just amazing to see, at least in that one game, but I guess it, it happened elsewhere too, this uh, assemblage of literally all-star baseball talent 
in a in a military game. It's it's fascinating to me. Maybe you can I, unwind that a little bit for us. Yeah, I think one of the first things to be aware of is that I would say that the best baseball in the world was played in Hawaii during the war. You know, of all the baseball played anywhere, you know, the baseball played back in the U.S., baseball played in Europe by military teams. I think the, the baseball being played in Hawaii during the war was was the best there was. Um, and some of the names you mentioned, Phil Risotto, um, that, that, the DiMaggio on the scoreboard is actually Dom DiMaggio rather than, than Joe. Sure, but not a bad player in his own right. <laughs> not a bad player at all. And Joe should have been on the uh, the Air Force team, but he was unwell. He didn't have a good time in Hawaii. Um, but the picture is a beautiful picture. I got it from somebody named Harrington Chrissy, who has done lots of work on um, research with regards to Navy baseball. And he has a, a great collection of photographs. And that's one that uh, I hadn't seen long before I, I put the book together. And just when I saw it, I said, well, that has to be the cover. It's a, it's a fabulous old scoreboard. It's from the 1944 Service World Series, which was between the between the Army and the Navy. So you got a real rivalry between two outfits and um, both the Army and the Navy brought players in from, from all over the place to, to appear in these games. Um, and the, the, well, the Navy ran away with the series. It, was an, it ended up being an 11-game series. They played not just on Oahu, but they played on other islands as well. Uh, and the Navy really ran away with the series. But you had guys on there like... Um, Johnny Mize, Barney McCoskey, Joe Grace, Phil Risotto, um, Pee Wee Reese. I mean, you're talking about Hall of Fame players that were that were playing on this military team, and it's it's really quite quite a, a remarkable thing that uh, baseball of that kind of standard was being played. Um, you as two military teams, two you know an army team and a, and a navy team. What, what was it about Hawaii? I mean, uh, you're mentioning sort of this, uh, I'm guessing this was uh, itself a series that got to uh, these particular teams being the ones that represented both the Army and the Navy. Um, I, but you did mention that there are games and, and circuits, if you will, going on elsewhere in the world. Was this just sort of a, uh, a, 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 a circumstantial situation that the bulk of these players in this particular realm were domiciled or headquartered out of uh, theater operations in Hawaii, or were these actually teams that, if you will, got flown in from their uh, from other regions to play there? Uh, because I, I'm just curious as to why Hawaii, I guess. Yeah, uh, Hawaii had really become the the stepping stone to to the whole uh, Pacific campaign at this time. This is 1944, um, and. You know, we, you know, the fight was now being taken to the Japanese at this sort of time. So Hawaii was a hugely busy place. We had a, a lot of troops that were coming through Hawaii. And this really was, a, again, a part of, of entertainment, really, for, for troops. That's what it was all about. It was about entertaining the, the service personnel that were coming through Hawaii at that time. So as far as the um, the... There was no real league competition to get to these two teams. These were two two teams that were selected. One was a, representing the Army. One was representing the Navy. And they were just the best players that were on the island at the time. Having said that, um, Phil Rizzuto and Don DiMaggio were actually flown in from Australia to appear in those games. They flew in for the series and then flew out again when the series was finished. So I guess they were were 
you, you can definitely call those two guys ringers, I guess, for, for that series. Those two came, came in for that. But everybody else was already in Hawaii. Um, and the reason they were there is, is really as, as entertainment, as entertainment for the troops, which is what Joe DiMaggio didn't like. I think that was, that was his real problem um, during that time was he didn't like the fact that he was being used for entertainment. I think everybody else was very happy to be doing that, but he had a bit of a problem with that. He should have been in that series. He didn't play. He didn't play any of the games. Um, I think he was hospitalized during that time. Um, it had been a, an, un, a, an unhappy few months for him during that time. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess there's a real good example, I guess, of the the real tension, I guess, between sort of, you know, how much are you uh, trying to uh, – what is the war effort, so to speak, right? Is, is, should yeah. we be more severe and focused and and – you know, and 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 shake off the sort of entertainment and and more normal kinds of things in life, given the uh, urgency of of situation at hand. Or is this actually part of it, right? And I guess it gets pretty pretty deeply philosophical, right? I mean, as we mentioned before, it went all the way up to the you know the the president of the United States to sort of you know essentially give that green light, if you will, to to allow baseball to play back in the United States. Um, I I got to think that. Joe was not necessarily the only person sort of feeling, I guess, mixed emotions about being, I don't know, used or, or taken advantage of, or, or frankly, maybe this is like a, a you know, a, 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 I don't know, a, some kind of beneficial pass, if you will, given your status as a baseball player. Yeah, to be honest, he's one of the few that, that, that I'm aware of that was unhappy about that situation. You know, the, I think the majority were, were majority were quite happy to still be able to play baseball you know they, they were they were now in military service and had that opportunity to to play and I just think they were really just counting their blessings I think the fact that they were able to do that um I think Joe was going through a tough time anyway I think he was going through a divorce as well and I think that it just wasn't a good time for him uh, and he resented as you said being used I think that was really the the problem he felt he felt that he was being used he at, at one point, his, his very first game in Hawaii was at Honolulu Stadium, and it drew a capacity crowd of 25,000. Um, and I think that uh, you know, a lot of the money from that game went into the pockets of the people that, that really were the stadium management. So it went into the pockets of civilians. And I think that may have been the, the start of, of really what bothered him. I think he was okay playing for the entertainment of troops, but I think if he felt that his presence was lining the pockets of civilians, I think maybe that's where his problem lie. Give us a, a sense of some of the other uh, players that were sort of part of uh, this mixture during this period of time. I mean, we mentioned DiMaggio, but uh, Ted Williams is also part of this story. Stan Musial is part of the story. I mean, there was some really, I mean, you know, we're talking some of the, we're talking major Hall, eventual Hall of Famers that were what a time and what a mixture of of players around that time. I mean, that's it under it's it, it truly underpins what you said that this arguably could have been some of the best baseball played, ironically, not in the continental United States in, in the majors. There were um, around 150 major league players that were stationed in Hawaii at some point between 1942 and 1945. The vast majority of those, 1944, 1945. But there were 13 Hall of Famers 
13 future Hall of Famers were there. Uh, that included Bill Dickey, included Joe DiMaggio, it included uh, Joe Gordon of the Yankees. Ralph Kiner was there, although Ralph Kiner, interestingly, wasn't playing. He was actually flying. He was actually flying for the Navy, so he wasn't playing. Pee Wee Reese, Red Ruffing was with the Air Force. Ted Williams was there in 1945. Um, he wasn't there particularly long. He um, And Ted Williams had trained as a pilot. He'd got out there pretty much when the war had finished. Um, and so he, I think he originally was expecting to be deployed in a combat zone, but the war had finished. So he was, um, he was sent to Hawaii and uh, managed to play some baseball while he was there. Bob Lemon, a future Hall of Famer, interestingly learned a pitch while he was in Hawaii. Uh, he had been a third baseman beforehand, um, but it was really pitching for his team in Hawaii that really built up those that, that kind of those new skills. And when he came back after the war, he really stopped being a third baseman, started working out as a pitcher, and uh, the rest is history with Bob Lemon. Uh, Ted Lyons was there. Johnny Myers was there. Stan Musial was there in 1945. Phil Rizzuto and Enos Slaughter. There's 13 Hall of Famers. I mean, that, that's that's why I, I you know, I, I believe the best baseball was played there in Hawaii during the war. I really do. It, it's a, it's a it's an incredible list of names um, that were playing at that time, and an incredible opportunity for lesser known players to be able to play alongside these guys because all these guys played for separate teams. Um, so you know, the, the rest of the team will be made up with other a few other major league players, a couple of minor league players, and then, you know, guys that were college players and Sandlot players and high school players. So what a what an amazing opportunity for those guys to play alongside future Hall of Famers. Do you get a sense of how their uh, their days sort of were structured? I mean, uh, practice, I mean, how much time were they able to uh, devote to uh, baseball play relative to whatever other duties that they had to do as their proverbial day jobs uh, fighting a war. Yeah, it's, uh, I think military duties came first, but I also think the military duties were structured around whatever games needed to be played. So I, I think there, there was, there was some preferential treatment. I, I don't have any doubts. And I, I think that their, the military days was, was structured a little, a little differently from others. Um, so, so there were, they, you know, they uh, they definitely got some some preferential treatment, I would say, with regards to that. But they they still certainly had to to do a lot of other work. They, they certainly had to um, say help. You know, in some cases, help build some of the stadiums and, and make sure that the teams all had equipment and run all the training sessions. But not just for their own teams, they would run um, they'd run training sessions for. Um, softball teams um, and, and maybe for other sports as well. So they'd be, be involved in that side of things as well. But I think there, there certainly was, it was made sure they were available. I think is probably the best way to put it. I think people made sure they were available for games. In your research, were you able to determine how much or how little of these, these games, this play was uh, more broadly publicized to the general public? Uh, was this, really kind of within the confines of the military and it was really kind of only for that, you know, the stars and stripes uh, newspaper and that kind of thing, or was there any effort that you could tell? And I was, I wasn't around at the time, so I don't know, but I mean, was there, uh, shall we say public relations fodder here uh, to uh, 
share with the general populace that these games and this this and these players that you may remember from from last year or the year before are are doing well and competing and staying fresh, so to speak, while also serving the war. I could see propaganda creeping in, but but I don't know. This is new to me, and I would imagine I would have, as a sort of a general armchair historian, have have sort of seen some of those newsreels and stuff. I, how 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 readily available was this information about these games going on, or was it kind of kept within military and and uh, and the war effort circles? It, it was it was very much available. Uh, a big part of my research was was reading uh, the newspapers of Honolulu, the Star Advertiser, and the Bulletin. Uh, there was uh, it was in there every single day. Uh, the, the 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 players that were arriving in Hawaii, the the games that were being played, the league standing statistics, batting statistics, pitching statistics, all of this was included in in um, civilian newspapers. Um, very much so. We also had two leagues. So you had the Hawaii League and the Honolulu League. And the Hawaii League played from, I think, about April to September, while the Honolulu League was an early league. It began in January until about April and kind of served as a almost like a feeder league, like a farm league to the Hawaii League. Now, both of these leagues had military teams included in them. So in uh, 1944, the Hawaii League included the 7th Army Air Force team and included a Navy team. So these teams were playing um, in front of civilian audiences as well as military audiences as well. In 1945, the the Hawaii League had three military teams, um, all Air Force teams from Hickam Field, Bellows Field and Wheeler Field. So it was very much for the public as well. Um, Up until... 1945 um the navy pulled out of civilian competition in 1945 it was decided that navy personnel should only be used for the entertainment of navy personnel so from 1945 pretty much all the games played by navy teams were played on navy camps so not really in in front of the civilians and the uh, the Army and the Army Air Force followed suit a little bit later that year. But certainly kind of 1942, 43, 44, very much in the public eye uh, and, and very much for the, the entertainment of the public as well as, as the military. What was, well, how would you describe the quality of the baseball itself? Were you able to determine, you know, uh, was it sort of, exhibition sort of quality was it competitive was it somewhere in between certainly wasn't major league caliber per se despite some of the players or or was it surprisingly competitive given the situation i i think it i mean it's hard to tell but i'm i'm pretty sure i feel pretty sure it, it was very competitive um I think there was uh, certainly when you had the, the 1944 Service World Series, which was between the, the Navy and the, uh, and the Army, you, you've got a huge rivalry there. You really have. And I think 11 games were played, and I think they just went all out for, for every single game. And pretty much every player on those teams were, were, were major league players. There were a, a few that weren't, but the majority of them were, were major league players, a lot of them future Hall of Famers. And I think that those games were played to win. Uh, I, I, to some extent, some games probably weren't sometimes. Um, but, but most of the leagues were very competitive. The 14th um, Naval District League, I think, was an extremely competitive league. 
and, and if you look at, at, at batting averages and things, you know, there's a few guys might be hitting around 400, but uh, you know, the, the averages weren't weren't that different for what you'd expect to see. Um, uh, you know, when when you're looking at major league batting averages. What was organized baseball's feeling about all of this? I mean, you're mentioning that this was not sort of hidden. This was publicity. Uh, people were reading and hearing about these games and, and these players and their exploits and, and, and all of that. And I'm sure a lot of it was sort of swallowed hard, if you will. And, uh, you know, supporting of the, of the war effort and whatnot. But I, I can't imagine that the uh, industrialists behind organized baseball at the time uh, trying to you know, limp along and keep the sport going and uh, back back home and, and, and you know, support. But also, you know, I can't imagine, though, that they enjoyed seeing some of their best and star players, um, I don't know, being touted outside of the game. Or, or maybe it was a, a promotional, uh, promotionally convenient. I, I don't I'm just curious as to how that relationship, if you can call it that kind of was at that time. I think it's an interesting point. I, I guess you can look at it from a few different angles. I think I, I think one thing is, well, at least those players are keeping themselves in shape so that when they come back, they're going to be ready to play again. Um, I guess also there's that fear that if they are playing every day, are they going to get injured and therefore not come back in good shape? Um, but I... I, I it was, I really do think it was a different time. And I think people thought differently. Um, and I just think that, you know, maybe those, those owners kind of looked and thought, well, this is what, this is what the country needs. You know, this is a morale booster for the, for, for everybody. And we need this. And let, let's, you know, and I'd like to think they were behind it. Again, I've not heard any stories um, that have said they weren't. Yeah, that's interesting. I I, I just got to think that there was, uh, and maybe not fully understood or or, or um, shared, so to speak, is sort of a, a this dichotomy, I guess, of of um, yeah. You can imagine, like, if you're the Dodgers or the Yankees or one of the sort of supreme teams, if you will, uh, seeing uh, some of your best players, um, uh, not only you know being uh, good and supportive members of, of the military as the, as the war rages on. I mean, there's, there's nothing bad about that from, I guess, a, a PR perspective. Right. But I, you know, you also got to think too, that some of these players with all due respect may never come back again. Right. Or, uh, you know, they're fighting a war and, and, and they could get injured. Uh, you know, these are, if you will, prize possessions of these teams, which are going concerns and businesses and stuff. And, um, and in some respects, you, you kind of just probably fear every day that you don't have them on your lineup and, and your uh, designs on what the team and, and baseball is going to be once the once the war hopefully is over. I, I just that strain has got to be pretty real and raw and maybe um, sort of under the surface of a lot of things. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was. I, I think maybe the game is more driven by money these days. Uh, and, you know, if, you, if you're looking at somebody, if he's not playing for me, then he's playing for somebody else and he's not making me any money. Um, maybe the game wasn't driven quite as much by money in those days. Um, but certainly there were a few players that did get injured and, and didn't come back, uh, weren't able to, to continue their careers. Um, yeah, I th- there's a there's a few of them that, that where that happened. I think Cecil Travis is probably the the most well known one. 
who um, he, you know, I mean, he wasn't playing baseball during during his military service. He was fighting in Europe um, and ended up with frozen feet, fighting on the battlefields, um, and, and never really came back the player that he had been before he went to war. But uh, you know, if you're if you're away from the game for two three years, if you're still playing then I guess you're keeping fresh to some extent. And I guess, you know, maybe team owners would say, well, that's, that's a good thing. At least, you know, at least, at least they'll be worth something when they come back. Um, so not too sure on that one. Uh, any uh, particular teams or um, uh, leagues, uh, if you will, or, or competitions that um, stood out in, in your research? I mean, you, your book is, it's meticulous, but I mean, if, for example, the uh, the Hickam Field Bombers, right, um, and some some great names in there. Some some of which, uh, you know, I've never heard of, like Johnny Swede Jensen. Uh, you know how good or bad he was, um, uh, but Johnny Mazer was on that team, right? I mean, it, so I'm just curious if there were any um, any teams uh, or maybe one or two that sort of stood out or stand out that um, people might just not generally be aware of and. If they consider themselves big fans of baseball, they they maybe might want to investigate uh, these uh, these uh, you know unique teams or, or situations further. Yeah, I think the biggest league was was really the the Fourteenth Naval District League. I think that's the I think that's really the kind of the the Premier League, I guess you could call it, with regards to um, baseball being played in Hawaii during the war. And that had just some great teams on. The Navy had more players than the Army. The Army seemed to struggle to get players. I don't, I don't know the reason behind that. But uh, probably the biggest Naval team was the Pearl Harbor Submarine Base Dolphins, which, again, I think is a, is a, is a great name for a team. Um, and they had been playing in Hawaii since before the war. But uh, once the war started, they, they were able to pick up a lot more players Walt Masterson, the pitcher, was one of the, the key players that they picked up. Um, but that league had had some fabulous teams, and it really did. Um, the um, Iron Naval Barracks Dodgers, the Fleet Marine Force, which is uh, the um, I forget, I think that was Ted Lyons with that team, and then the Ewa Flyers, who um, Ted Williams played with, and the Ship Repair Unit as well, who, which Stan Musial played with. So there was, you know, there, there were there were some, just some pretty incredible leagues, uh, very well structured leagues as well that, that to play throughout the war, um, and just just you know, a, a great entertainment. You really, that's what it was all about. It was great entertainment for for people that were about to perhaps head off to uh, Pacific Islands, Iwo Jima, Okinawa. Saipan, you know, uh, and pretty good chance they weren't going to come back. Are there any such any instances, and not just in Hawaii, but uh, of just playing uh, of baseball play in and during the war effort generally? Of, I mean, we mentioned some situations where you know players who uh, either got injured or, or were uh, unable really to kind of resume their uh, their careers uh, after after the end of the war. Were there any? Um, last lack of a better word, discoveries of players in and around the military that uh, once the war was over, got a look perhaps for the first time uh, in organized baseball once the war was done. Yeah, I think there were a few. Uh, Certainly one in Hawaii that stands out is uh, a guy named uh, John Andre, who 
uh, he had he'd been drafted, so he was in Hawaii before Pearl Harbor. He was um, he was wounded at Pearl Harbor, uh, not severely, but uh, but he was wounded at Pearl Harbor. He played for various military teams throughout the war, including the uh, the, the Hickam bombers that you mentioned. Um, so he played all the way through the war and then got into the minor leagues at the end of the war and eventually got to the major leagues. It took him until 1955, and that was his only season. He played with the Chicago Cubs in 1955. That was his 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 only year in the big leagues. But uh, he was certainly uh, one of the key players. But also I think another one, is, is as I mentioned before, was Bob Lemon. Bob Lemon had been a third baseman trying to make it as a third baseman. Uh, with the Cleveland Indians and never really succeeding. But then in Hawaii uh, and playing over there, he, he, he started to work out as a pitcher and that really seemed to work for him. So when he came back, um, he really kind of focused on being a pitcher and, and ended up with a Hall of Fame career. Um, so I guess in a way you could, you could say thanks to Hawaii and thanks to military service for, for Bob Lennon. Yeah, this is this is just fascinating stuff. I, I, um, I, I'm just I, I'm amazed. I mean, I, I, and f- uh, folks listening to this episode, right? You, you have to, and I'm going to let Gary do some promotion in a minute. But uh, your website, baseballandwartime.com, I mean, is just uh, a treasure trove. Is 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 an understatement uh, in terms of uh, just the the meticulous uh, research around uh, all of these players, regardless of theater. Um, regardless of year or service branch uh, that they were part of. Uh, it's just, it goes on and on and on. And these, these are names that, you know, any baseball fan will know uh, and any baseball historian will uh, find another layer of, of uh, dimension, I guess, of, of, of players uh, and their, let's call it their, their alternative life <laughs> uh, for this period of time during the war effort. It, it is, this um, I, I, this is an amazing trove of, of information and stuff. I just I wonder how um, you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the conversation that the, you feel like there's still more yet to be discovered. But my God, this is just a, 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 a just a, a an absolute uh, uh, bibliography, if you will. And and I I can't imagine how much more there's out there. But you still think that there are people and players and situations still undiscovered, both Hawaii and, and generally. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy with what I've got, but it's so incomplete. <laughs> there is so much more. I, I, I will never get it finished. Uh, there is so much more work to do. Uh, there really is. Um, I, I don't know how it could ever get completed. The biggest problem with military baseball is that the records are fairly incomplete. They're very scratchy. You have to dig around in, in newspapers and, and try and get a hold of copies of, of, of military uh, newspapers and magazines at the time and try and find something. And, and unfortunately, we're, we're kind of running out of people that were there at the time. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was hugely fortunate that I started this 25 years ago when there were still quite a few people around and I managed to get to, to talk to people and, and I found out so much from those guys that were still alive. But uh, unfortunately, we're pretty thin on the ground these days. So it's really down to, to records that have been kept. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's more to come. I think there's still more to come. I, and I'm still, you know, what, what intrigues me most of all is that I'm still finding players that 
didn't survive. You know, they lost their lives during the war, and yet they're completely forgotten. They're, they're, they're unknown. They're, 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 you know, people didn't even know they existed. And yet, you know, they played minor league baseball, not major league baseball. There are only two that, that, that died um, during World War II that played major league baseball. But a lot of minor league players, and I'd say probably around 160 is what I've got at the moment. I know there are more. You know, we found another couple just, just a couple of weeks ago. We, we came up with another couple of names. They just keep cropping up. And I guess what I want to do is just make sure that they all have a voice. They are all remembered in some way. What they, you know, the sacrifice that they made is, is just incredible. And I think that that should always be remembered. But then also I think the sacrifice that, that baseball players made with regards to their military service, whether they played baseball or whether they fought on the front line, I don't, I don't care. I just think that they, sh- they should be remembered for the fact that they were taken away from the game that they loved for two, three, four, five years um, and, and, and serve their country. And I think that they should all be remembered. And there's a lot more work to do. I'm not there yet. I'll keep on going. <laughs> All right, let me ask you one more question, and I'll let you promote uh, after that. Um, I, on their website, in particular, uh, is it, to me is a, a, a completely uh, separately fascinating uh, uh, environment that I suspect is also probably uh, the place where you probably have maybe the most uh, yet still uh, soil to till, and that's the Negro League side of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm really especially curious. I mean, there were some tremendous and amazing names that went on to play in major league baseball as well. Right. Which in and of itself is a story, right. You know, people like Larry Doby and uh, Monty Irvin and and on and on. Um, How much uh, were you able to kind of discern the uh, delicate issue, I guess, of quote unquote integration or, or um, uh, that kind of stuff in and around military play for these players that, um, you know, literally back home couldn't, get a shot in the major leagues because of, you know, this, the various issues and, and obstinance and ignorance. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear, uh, and maybe this is sort of still an open-ended question for you, uh, what the quote unquote Negro league experience was like in the armed forces baseball play. Uh, was it better? Was it worse? Was it, they were, these were just, uh, cause you know, Lord knows there's a plenty of stories about sort of, segregated units during the war and you know the the um the inequity and the absurdity frankly of you know fighting for your country when yet you're back home there's still this rampant segregation and 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 injustices and inequalities i i'm just curious as to maybe this is a book in and of itself right is i i gotta think the the uh, uh african-american baseball experience in the military during the war is an is itself its own subset of, of stories intrigue and, and drama and other things yeah it, it was something that i w- really wanted to look at closely um the, the the military was segregated the army was segregated so so any uh, african-american personnel were in their own military units um but interestingly Baseball very often wasn't segregated. Very often wasn't. Um, it, it mostly was on the mainland in the U.S., but it wasn't in Hawaii and, it's, and it wasn't in Europe. Uh, I guess uh, you know, things were just a little bit more relaxed there. And just kind of taking Hawaii as, as an example, 
uh, we had um, former Negro League players like Frank Williams, Hal Hairston, uh, a guy named Sonny Boy Jeffries. Uh, they had all played in the Negro Leagues before World War II. They were now serving in the Army. And all of those were playing on integrated teams. So Frank Williams was the first baseman with the Schofield Redlanders. Um, and that, that was a, a something that he, he wouldn't have been able to do back home in the U.S. You know, before being in the military. And Hal Hairston was pitching for the 7th Army Air Force. He, Hal Hairston pitched in the, in the uh, 1944 Service World Series. So he had here a Service World Series with people like Pee Wee Reese, Phil Rizzuto, Joe Gordon, uh, Johnny Mize, and Hal Hairston, a Negro League pitcher. Uh, you know, it, it was it was a, a, an incredible opportunity for them um, to be able to do that, and, and rightly so. Um, and you know, I'm, you know, gladly things began to change on the baseball front. You know, after the war, but certainly during the war. It, it, yeah, integration happened. Integration happened in Europe as well. There, there were teams in Europe. The, the team that won the 1945 ETO World Series was an integrated team uh, with uh, Willard Marshall and Leon Day were the two players on that team. Um, so, so really just, just a, you know, a great – what was done is what should have been done. Yep, and that's that's the way it should be, and it was it was great to see that opportunity. There's a lot more, I think, work and research, and he said probably a book on its own, um, just talking about that subject. I really, I really think there is. Yeah, I mean, I it just it seems to me it almost this is, uh, uh, and you know, we, we've we've dealt with a lot of different sort of Negro League teams and and league situations and and stories and stuff, but it, you know, it feels to me again as an armchair sort of uh, a historian and or uh, you know just. Uh, uh, amateur uh, uh, passion and interest sort of in these stories that um, it, it almost uh, it, it became sort of a bit of a harbinger, right? Or a um, uh, a template, frankly, of what and how and overdue, frankly, uh, how integration could and should look uh, in in sports and in baseball in particular. And, you know, certainly by the end of uh, the decade, right, we finally had broken through, you know, the the color barrier and all that kind of stuff. But but it's it's ironic, uh, sad, uh, uh, um, um, anticipatory, uh, obvious. I don't know, but pick, pick your adjective. But um, uh, to me, it's it's a fascinating and and still odd sort of sort of story about. I mean, you're mentioning segregation in the uh, in some of these units or a lot of these units. Yet here they are, the teams and stuff. At the end of the day, right? If 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 it's a quote unquote war effort, right? Or if you're looking for quality baseball players, I mean, what the hell difference does it make what skin color you are when you're trying to, you know, win a, win a league and, and all that stuff. And then it just brings into relief all the other things about like, well, why are we separated and segregated in the first place? I, again, hindsight, certainly 2020. And we've all, you know, there's, there's been there's evolved hopefully, but um, to me, fascinating uh, part of, of the dynamic. And by the way, I guess last point, and I, I promise I'll let you promote now, what of, uh, I guess, um, uh, Asian Americans in this, right? Because Hawaii obviously was a relatively new um, uh, uh, territory slash state uh, for the United States. Uh, obviously, there are Pacific Islanders in there. There's Asian influence there. Uh, clearly, we know stories about internment in, in San Francisco and the Bay Area and the West Coast 
the Japanese in the United States, even if they were fully Americanized or had been, you know, successor generations were looked upon or cast aspersions towards. Um, was there similar integration and or um, tensions there, too? I got to think there was some. It, it, you know, it, it's interesting because although Hawaii, what we had was we had this integration where we had African-Americans playing alongside white players, for, for want of a better, uh, a better word. Interestingly, the teams in Hawaii before World War II, the teams in the Hawaii League were actually kind of segregated teams, but segregated by... We had Japanese uh, Japanese team. We had a Chinese team. We had a Portuguese team. So uh, it was quite interesting that these these teams were were segregated prior to that. So you would have thought that maybe the the kind of integration then during the war wouldn't really happen. But um, yeah, baseball in in Hawaii before World War Two was very kind of segregated by by their their ethnic background. But we had a lot, um, I mean, 15, uh, around about 15 Japanese-American players from Hawaii went and played in the Japanese professional leagues before World War II started. Um, 1936, the Japanese professional league began, and around about a dozen or so headed over to uh, Japan to play in those leagues. Uh, players like uh, Fred Hasegawa, Jimmy Horio, Bozo Wakabayashi, who ended up in the Japanese Hall of Fame. These guys were all Hawaiians um, uh, of Japanese descent um, and all went out to play in Japan. The vast majority of them came back in 1941, early part of 1941, when you could see that things, you know, the, the, the relationships between the Japan and the US were starting to break down and things weren't going too well. Most of them came back, although actually a couple of them didn't. A couple of them actually stayed and remained in Japan throughout the war. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, um, certainly I, I, I think integration is, uh, is, is a whole separate subject that we should, uh, hey, maybe that's my next book. <laughs> All right. Well, we get 10%, whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> so, all right. So uh, time to promote. Uh, give us um, uh, where uh, we can all find and, and, and read more and follow you in your continued exploits in this. Um, the current book, as well as uh, the site and, and frankly, projects that you think you've got sort of uh, uh, in the hopper either now or uh, going forward. Okay, well, um, you, I've, got, I've got two websites, actually. I've got a website called BaseballInWartime.com, which uh, is an incomplete history of wartime baseball. It's as much as I can find so far, but it's a, every day I'm trying to add something new to that. But there, as you mentioned, there is a ton of stuff on there. Um, and it really looks at everything to do with military baseball. Um, it doesn't just focus on major league stuff. It focuses on anybody that played baseball during the war. And I've tried to get team rosters in there. I've tried to get league standings and, and, and biographies of players as much as I can. But I also have another website, which is called uh, baseballsgreatestsacrifice.com. And that website is a little bit different because that's dedicated entirely to people that either lost their lives or were wounded in combat during um, during their military service. So that's a kind of a whole different look at things. Um, I have on there biographies for around about 160 minor league players who lost their lives in World War II, 
so far we found 25 minor, minor league players who lost their lives in the First World War. Pretty convinced there's more. I just haven't found them yet. We've also got them for the Korean War, Vietnam War, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, wherever I can find players that, that, that made the ultimate sacrifice, they're on, on that website. So those are my two websites that I have. I also produce a, a newsletter, a kind of an on-off newsletter that's been running since 2007. I think we've had about 50 issues of that have come out so far during those years. So there's always kind of bits and pieces in there as well. Um, but my most recent project is the uh, a book called Baseball in Hawaii During World War II, which um, tries to tell the story of everything that happened military-wise with regards to baseball, although it covers the civilian leagues as well, because it's never been done before. And that was my pandemic project. So I needed something to do during the pandemic when uh, we here in the UK were in a pretty tight lockdown and couldn't really do anything or go anywhere. So here's a project I took. Uh, I've never even been to Hawaii, I must admit. Um, that is on my list of places to go. And uh, I feel I know the place really well, but I've never actually been there. Um, but it, it was an it, it became an important book for me to put together because not only of the players that were there, but I just think that the rich baseball history that happened during those years and really trying to piece everything together. Um, so that you can pick up from Amazon. That's available from Amazon. And it's a, a fair size book. I think 340 something pages, got about 150 pictures um, around 160 biographies of players in there as well. Uh, league standings, um, statistics, pretty much everything I could I could gather um, for baseball in Hawaii during World War II. Um, as far as future projects are concerned, um, I had the privilege of attending a thing, uh, um, an event in New Orleans back in 2007 called When Baseball Went to War. Uh, which was a, a, a fascinating conference. We had Bob Feller there. Um, we had, uh, um, let me think, Jerry Coleman was there. Johnny Pesky was there. Unfortunately, we've, we've lost all these these guys since then. Um, but we put together a book anyway for that conference back in 2008. But we're now looking at a, um, a new expanded edition of that book. So um, that's quite an exciting little project at the moment is looking at, at putting that together. So that's happening at the moment. Um, don't have too much in the way of details of that. It's still just kind of in the pipeline as far as that's concerned. And at some point, I am going to do baseball in Europe during World War II. Um, but I just think I need to take a breather for a little while, and then I'll get onto that project as well. So uh, that's pretty much me. But as I say, the website is always, I'm always adding stuff to that. Um, and I, I should also say, I also welcome anything as well. If anybody has anything, um, any stories or, or anything related to wartime baseball, they, they want me to share on that website. I, that's what it's there for. And I would be happy to, uh, to put anything on there that they might have photographs, stories, anything at all. Very, very interesting. Uh, thank you, Gary. Uh, Baseball in Hawaii during World War II. That's the name of Gary's book. Uh, it is published by uh, Baseball in Wartime Publishing, which, oddly enough, is also the website, baseballinwartime.com. 
Uh, that's Gary's site. And uh, there you will find uh, an amazing treasure trove of uh, information and blog postings, a little bit more about the book, um, some of the more uh, uh, well-remembered or known players, uh, a bunch who are not. Um, and there's a sister site called baseballsgreatestsacrifice.com, uh, which uh, literally is the uh, uh, large uh, and comprehensive and, and frankly always still sadly growing uh, database of players who lost their lives in, in various uh, war efforts uh, who uh, either had a, a minor league cup of coffee or a substantial major league or somewhere in between career. Uh, and uh, and Gary's uh, work is uh, uh, just, it's, a, it's a, an important contribution to the history of the sport of baseball for sure. Uh, you will be fascinated by all of it. And I highly encourage you to get a copy of this book and uh, check out the websites and all of that stuff. Uh, of course, you can search up this episode with Gary on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, of course, this week uh, for that episode, you'll find tons of great photography, uh, which is uh, especially helpful for this uh, this week's uh, show. You'll also uh, see that on our social media feeds as well. But if you search up this episode on our website, uh, you'll find a convenient link to the book, which will take you to Amazon uh, for uh, a quick and easy uh, 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 ordering process, and you'll get the book delivered about as fast as humanly possible. Uh, and of course, while you're on the website, goodseatsstillavailable.com, you can see all the episodes that we've done uh, for the last four and a half years, uh, as well as all the episodes to come. They're all there for you to stream, uh, to share, to download, do whatever you'd like. Of course, the easiest way uh, to ensure that you get every stinking episode of our little show is to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast uh, catcher, feeder, whatever it is you uh, might uh, utilize to uh, listen to podcast episodes. We're just about everywhere you can find good podcasts. Um, and on social media, you'll find us as well. On Facebook, you'll find us a good seat still available. Uh, on uh, Instagram, you'll find us a good seat still available. And on Twitter, you will find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, you can send us email if you'd like directly. By all means, please do so at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. We got an email newsletter for you, an email newsletter, he's trying to say. Uh, that's a weekly endeavor. Uh, just uh, go to the website uh, again and uh, just search around. You'll find a little link, uh, just a name and your email address, and you are good to go and you are considered yourself on the list. Uh, our thanks, of course, to the great, the wonderful, the one, the only, you, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him, Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you, kind sir, for all of your editing chores and uh, uh, expertise this week. And thank you, the great listeners out there, for listening. As always, we appreciate it and love it very much. We tip our baseball cap to you in uh, your various general directions this week, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week here on this little show. Thanks very much for listening. Until then, stay safe, enjoy some of the summer that's coming your way, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.